welcome to Conversations About Life. Thanks, Dennis, for being a guest on my podcast. Thanks, Will. Glad to be here. So, as far as introduction, I came to know you through the food pantry right. at St. Christina's at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. So, you're a volunteer there. Yes. And then um, you were over at my place for dinner recently, and you mentioned that you teach R something or another. RCIA, Right for Christian Initiation for Adults. Right. So, I've heard of that, and... So it's for people who want to get into the Roman Catholic religion, yes. and it just introduces them and so forth. Sure. How long have you been teaching that? Uh, here, probably three or four years, Okay. So along that line. You enjoy teaching it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's my faith. It's uh, telling things that I like about my faith to other people who want to know. Most of what we talk about is uh, the gospel on Sunday mornings. Uh-huh. Uh, we actually... Um, talk about the words of what Christ is saying in the gospel and things like that. And uh, it's uh, interesting to enlighten a lot of people about it. So, so I'm not assuming that every, every listener knows exactly what you mean by gospel. So whenever we say a religious word, let's just say what we mean. So what, what do you mean by gospel? Okay, what, we, what we're talking about is the four gospels, uh, gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. Uh, these are... These are books that have been put together by the Catholic, well, not by the, well, by the Catholic Church that have been approved by the Catholic Church because they contain uh, the elements of Christ, but mostly because they contain the life, passion, and death of Christ. And it's those four items, there, the, the, the passion and death and the resurrection of Christ, that uh, make these stand apart from uh, all other ones. Now, there's some like the Book of Thomas and things like that. Catholic Church acknowledges, but they're not the apocalyptic type stuff that, uh, that the revelation of who Christ is. And that's why they go strictly with those four. Okay. All right. And um, and I've, if I remember right, like the word gospel, if you were going to like say what it means in English, it's like a good news Good news, absolutely. Yeah, it's right. the good news of Christ. Absolutely. Right. All right. So... Um, so I got some questions, just kind of diving into all of that. But before, you know, moving forward, anything else you want to say as far as introduction? No, I'm just, uh, my wife passed away, like I said earlier. Uh, we were married almost 40 years. I got four kids that are in their third, late 30s and early 40s now. Uh, I was born and raised a Catholic. I uh, went to St. Louis U High, became an engineer down at Rolla back in 71, and uh, got my professional engineering license, So, uh, and I'm retired. I've been retired now for about uh, eight years. I, I stopped working to help my wife when she was in hospice and all the other trouble that she was going through, So, yeah, and that's pretty much my life, my family, my kids, and my wife. Has, um, you know, kind of going through the death of someone who's close to you, um, like, what kind of impact has that made on you? Like, do you look at things differently now, or is there just that type of thing? I'll tell, I'll tell you exactly what it feels like. Uh, you never know what you're married. You, when, you, when you start life as a married person, there's always a lot of give and take between the people. But after you're married for so long, uh, you become one life. Your kids are the proof of that. You, you see your kids, that's mine and that's hers. It's both of ours. Uh, but when she passed, it was like I lost half of my life. It was like things that I didn't do, she did. And the things that she didn't do, I did. And so I look around my house all the time, and, and uh, it hasn't really changed since she left. And for six years, it was uh, she bought all the big things, and she bought the big ticket items. The only thing I ever bought was a car. <laughs> uh, but it was funny because uh, one of the funniest stories I could tell was uh, she always had to have things at her level. She stood about five foot four, and I'm about six one. So she got mad at me because of the fact that I would always put the mirrors up higher than what, so I could see in them. And she didn't like that. 
So one day I was looking around. I had these recipes on top of my refrigerator. And I said, you know, I want to get those down. This is about eight months after, nine months after she had passed. And I put them in the pantry over here, and uh, they were at my eye level. And I got them all cleared out, put them up there, and had them all organized. And I looked at it, and I started laughing to myself because, in fact, it was the first thing I've done in eight to nine months. It was, I did on my own. <laughs> and so it was kind of funny. I knew she was still here. She's always in my mind. She's always in my heart. But uh, it was just one of those things that I had to laugh at because I finally got enough courage to move something. <laughs> so was your marriage um, like a good marriage? Oh, like a- yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we always. Everybody's got their ups and downs. We're human. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the kids, when they grow up, when you have four teenagers at one time under one roof, you got stress. <laughs> there's stress in the house, right? Uh, because they're all growing up. They they've got their own opinions. They're challenging. They're they're being themselves, and uh, they're not the little ones that you remember when they were younger. Right. And so you got to deal with that. Uh, right. It's and they make their own decisions, which it's good. Yeah. I just hope it's the right decision sometimes. So. You want to pause to sure. pour a cup of co- coffee? Yeah, go, coffee? Go ahead. Yeah. And this will be a word from our sponsor. Thank you. Good coffee. Thank you. Okay, so. Okay, I'm back. Okay, so I just wrote down a few things as I was thinking about our conversation, you know, like what would I like to ask? And they're kind of basic. They start broad and they zero in a little bit. Um, But the first, a really basic, uh, but maybe kind of profound question is, you know, why are you religious? Why am I religious? That's a good question. Uh, Because I've seen people uh, that have no religion at all. They have no... They live for the present, but they have no idea of what the future holds for them. Uh, I was born and raised a Catholic, fortunately. Uh, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. That all prepared me somewhat from a religious standpoint uh, on how to live life as a Catholic. Uh, One of the profound things I think I saw or learned was in high school. There was one Jesuit teacher there that I'll never forget. And whatever he said to me, uh, it stuck with me. And when I'm in my early 20s and I'm out living on my own, it was like in the back of my mind, my conscience was always pushing me to do something different, to do something right. And uh, I always thought back on that, you know, know, what he had taught me, whatever it was, it stuck. Mm -hmm. And then I always have the feeling that there's an influence from a higher being, too, that's killing me. Get back to where you belong. You know, you need to come back home. You need to become what you were when you were younger. And uh, so a lot of that, uh, it's influence, it's training, it's uh, a gift from the Holy Spirit, most probably. Uh, it's, uh, there's, there's my feeling that there are things out there that can prompt you toward evil and it can prompt you toward good. Call them angels. Uh, we believe in angels. We, we know that they're there someplace. Uh, they're always around us. We have our guardian angels that we uh, we uh, hope and pray that they're keeping an eye out for us. And sometimes the biggest thing I've ever noticed in my entire life is something called free will. And the free will can be ex- it can be used as such to accept the gifts of grace that God gives us. And it can also be closed off to the point where we're just on our own. And some people don't realize how powerful that is. But you have to be willing, you have to be open to the influences and the grace that God has for us. You just look around and start contemplating about what we have. It's, 
it's beyond belief, actually beyond reality. Uh, this world, when you look out in the universe and see all the things that are out there and how they're established, how they're put together, and you look at our world and realize all the life that's around us and the variety, variety of life, uh, it's very, very profound. Hmm. So it's, uh, yeah. it surrounds me every day. My second question was why Christianity, but it, you kind of answered that a little bit in that that's what you were raised up because you got like the religious and, you know, there's different ways to be religious. So is there any other other reason for... Well, there's confirmation. You can... I've had many times in my life from confirmation of things that have occurred to me. Uh, and I always wonder why I'm here. I was born a blue baby. My wife was... My wife, my mom was always negative. Uh so there's a case history on me of being, uh, that actually survived. One day after I was born, I had a full body transfusion, hmm, full wow. blood transfusion, I'm sorry. And uh, the doctors thought that might have been one of the reasons why I have such poor hearing right now. It's because of that uh, lack of oxygen to the brain or, or whatever. Uh, I've had times when I was like 11, 12 years old, and I went to St. Martin of Tours here in South County, and uh, it's person pulled in front of me. I was driving my, my Schwinn bike, my first bike that I ever had. It was an English racer. And I was going down the hill on a wet hill, and uh, they pulled in front of me, and I threw the bike down, and I slid sideways holding onto the bike, and I went underneath the car on the back side, and I looked up. I could actually see the, the uh, fuel tank. Wow. And she was, and I, I was scared to death. I mean, I just, uh, I knew somebody was looking after me at that point. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the guts to tell my mom for probably about uh, 15 years of what happened on that day. But uh, I always look back on that and realize that somebody was looking out after me. Okay. And uh, just just other things. You know, why would I come back? Uh, I dated a girl. I quit dating her. She married my cousin. They raised four kids. About a couple of months later, I met this girl over at Western Bowl. And, uh, and he, uh, it was a Christian, young Christian uh Group group that we had it was Catholic, <clears throat> and I tried to fix her up with my roommate, and she said, "No, I want to go out with me." <laughs> oh, that was my wife. <laughs> okay, so you know, and you wonder is why do these things happen? You know the way they do, and uh, as it is, you know, looking back on it, you start seeing little things that happen to you in your life that support your thoughts, support your feelings, but you got to be open up to the graces that God's going to give you for those events to occur. And it's, it's something that's just amazing, just amazing to, to have and to have that feeling and knowing that somebody's up there looking after you. you know? Okay. So as far as, like, there's a lot of different ways to be a Christian. Sure. There's Eastern Orthodox, there's Roman Catholicism, there's Protestant, and there's probably more besides that. <laughs> but um, so why, for you, Roman Catholic? Why? Well, that's what my parents were. Right. And uh, I married a Roman Catholic. Uh, we raised our kids Roman Catholic. Uh, everything that they've got, they profess to be the one true church. Uh, there's uh, different rites. The Eastern Rite is still part of the uh, um, church, so to speak, but they're just a different rite from the Catholic Church. The biggest thing about the Catholic Church is that we have a pope. And you can look back, there's probably 273 or 74 popes that you can trace, trace that line all the way back to St. Peter. And when Christ told St. Peter that he was the rock, the, the keystone of the church, that he, he was going to be taking care of his, his sheep. And he professed that three times because Peter was a hardhead. And he had to get it in his mind to accept what Christ was saying. And it took some time for him to do it. But Christ still had faith in him. And that's that lineage of St. Peter and all of his successors uh, is, is there. Uh, now, it was funny. One thing, one thing uh, I had a Jesuit one time tell me. I said, if you, if you have a tough time believing in Christ, the person, and believing in Christ and everything that he said, believe in the apostles. Because the apostles were his disciples and 11 out of 12 disciples that he had all of them died 
as a martyr, except for John. John lived to be an old age. Why that happened, who knows? He was the youngest of all the, uh, the apostles. But look at what the apostles did and what they taught and who they were. And for the church to survive, that group of people, uh, they were somewhat illiterate, they weren't really learned very much, uh, is amazing. And especially in the fact that 2,000 years later, we're still proclaiming Christ. Yeah. So, so when it comes to like the supremacy of Peter, one thing that I, I think of, and I'll ask you about, is like in Acts, the Jerusalem Council, when... Um, I think it was Paul and Barnabas, they were coming to Jerusalem mm -hmm. to work out a matter about like, what do the Gentile believers need to sure. do? And then it seems that James, the brother of Jesus, was the one kind of presiding over and everything. You get the impression in, of, of that. Um, so if Peter was looked upon as like kind of the head guy, why in that scene does it look like James is the leader of the group at that point? He was probably just inter he was an intercessor probably between Paul and Peter. Paul and Peter butted heads. They, they, Paul was of the Gentile. He believed his whole focus was in bringing the Gentiles. And he was a Jew, but he, was, he, was, he, believed, in, he believed in the, the fact that he needed to get the Gentiles brought into the church at that time. Peter was still a Gentile, oh, I'm sorry, was still of the uh, Jewish conviction that he was still looking for the lost children of Abraham to bring them all together underneath the uh, fold of Christ. When these two finally got together, Peter did finally agree with Paul, and I don't know if it was from... Uh, something that he had seen, what, what Peter had seen, or whatever, but he was convinced of what Paul was teaching, that the Gentiles did belong with the Jewish group, and they all became one church. Uh, it's always amazed me that Paul got knocked off his horse, and he didn't, he didn't really know Christ per se. He knew him as a, like a prophet, but he was out there... Uh, grabbing up as many Jewish people as he could to persecute them to get because they were not of the Jewish faith. And he was trying to bring all these people back to the Jewish faith. And that was Paul. Uh, uh, yeah, Paul. And so what happened when he got knocked off, he was given a lot of relevations that only Christ could give him because there's a lot of teachings. You wonder why things happened the way they did. Uh, but Christ, I think, taught him right at that moment you're for me. Work for me. That's why he asked him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And me was the church. Because the way we look at the church right now, the church is, is the people. It's not any building that we can build. It's always been the people within that church. And it's been the leaders of that church, uh, the apostles who are our bishops, uh, and the pope who is, represents uh, Peter back in the old days. Because you always had to have one person leading, or at least a go-to guy, uh, to find out whether things are right, wrong, to basically lead a discussion. Uh, but he was a guy that uh, was there always in the entire length of the Catholic Church to uh, make sure things went right. Okay. Now, we've had some stinkers, don't get me wrong. There's been some really not-so-good leaders up there. But even Christ said that even the gates of hell wouldn't go against uh, his church. And we've seen that, and it hasn't. The church is still there. Yeah. So, a lot of things have happened, too, uh, with the sexuality stuff that's gone on mm -hmm. in the last few decades. Uh, that's things that uh, we've lived through it. It was things that we, we people-wise, they hold them in their hearts and hope that they don't get out, but they should have gotten out. They should have been stopped dead right in their tracks. And so these are things, too, that the church learns from. It's a shame that we have to go through that, but then that's, you got an evil being there that's many, many thousands of years old that can do things that we can't do and influence us in a way we shouldn't be influenced. And uh, I'll tell you right now, the priests are human too. They, they, they are prime targets for a lot of the evil that goes on. So uh, that's why you have to pray for them all the time. So, so from... 
I know this is like really broad, but from your perspective, who is God? Like how would the Catholic or just... Easy. You know? God is love. Okay. Everything what he does is a gift for us. There's nothing we can really give to him that he doesn't already have. So what we are doing is basically representing his love to us. When we go out and help somebody at the food pantry, we look at that person as if he's Christ. And we give to him, give to that person, the love that Christ gave to us. And that's the way we have to look at it at all times. And we're trying to help somebody, we're trying to help Christ. So what, and what did, what's the love that Christ gave to us? Like, what are you thinking? When you think of the love of Christ, what, is there anything in particular that Absolutely, you're thinking? Absolutely, the cross. The cross, okay. You look at the crucifixion. He was uh, abused beyond recognition. I had heard, apparently, this, this is one I just heard recently, I thought it was an interesting fact, the Shroud of Turin. I don't know if you've heard of that. but it's supposed to. It. There's some, some deep thoughts that it does represent the body of Christ, the image, mainly because in 1354 when this thing came out, um, the, the things that were done on that shroud were as if somebody had a sudden glare of light that had imprinted his face and body and figure onto the shroud in 3D. And they didn't know how to do that back then. Now they can look at the shroud and see that there's depth in some of the things that they wouldn't know how to have done back then. But they they had counted something like 600 lacerations on his body. And the fact that he he was purely innocent pure love that he went through that and died on the cross the big thing was had he not come back from the cross and resurrection on Easter the death would have meant nothing he had to come back on Easter to prove who he really was so what what did his death mean I'm sorry what what does his death mean or like basically he's telling us there's a resurrection okay. that everything he, he professed in his life, about, you know, be the last, become first, uh, to love your neighbor is the greatest commandment, or love your God as you love yourself, uh, as yourself, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are the two things that he professed in his life, and, by, and he had even foretold that he was going to come back after three days, and he did. So basically, it adds a lot of meat to the potatoes and all the words that he ever said, and it makes his words what he always said he was. I am the way the truth, and the life. And everything that he says follows that, that pattern, uh, and especially the, the resurrection being an ex- exclamation point on everything that he said. Okay, so the significance of the cross is that he rose from the dead, and that that's... He was willing to suffer okay. and die for us to give us the reconciliation of our sins, that's why we have reconciliation in the Catholic Church. It's one of the biggest things we've got other than the Eucharist. The Eucharist is always going to be number one, but the fact that we, the church forgives sins in the name of Christ, and it's not the priest that's sitting there listening. It's actually he's sitting in there as Christ himself, listening to the people and forgiving the people. And that's connected to Jesus' death on the cross. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And how, how does the connection work? Well, basically, if you look through his life, he forgave a lot of people. He okay. forgave the people, uh, the woman at the well. He forgave uh, uh, some of these taxpayers that kept showing up, or the tax collectors, I should say, that kept showing up. Uh, and he kept going toward the sinners at all times. Uh, Mary Magdalene was a perfect example of uh, somebody who, who was so taken up by her sins, and Christ forgave her. Yet she was like the first one at the tomb. And... When she got there, he wasn't there. And she turned around and said, you know, she thought the gardener was there. I said, can you tell me where they took him? Of course, Christ comes out and says, Mary. And she comes back and says, Rabboni, the teacher. He was a teacher. Uh, but she had her sins forgiven. And that's what Christ was through his entire life, was forgiving people's sins and knowing, teaching them what the kingdom of heaven was like. It's okay. exactly what he was. It's love, the grace is there, the forgiveness is there. Uh, it's everything that we would hope the kingdom of heaven would be. And that's what he proclaimed himself, was the kingdom of heaven. 
that he was there. He was the kingdom of heaven for us. We just had to see it. And then he got closed eyes. Sometimes it's tough. But when you're open up to the grace that he was showing to everybody, especially on the cross, that purest of love, um, that's a tough pill to swallow if you don't believe that he didn't do that for love. He wasn't nuts. He wasn't crazy. He was, right. he was doing it out of love. And was it for him to love us that way? I mean, was that necessary, him dying? It is who he is. It is who he is. Okay. Yeah. He's the Son of God. The love between those two, they always professed, if you believe in the Trinity, that they had God the Father, God the Son, and the love between these two individuals made the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was a was the actual showing of the love between the Father and the Son. And that's when Christ left and he gave the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles and gave them the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge and the grace to do the things that they had to do. Because if they didn't have that, you still got a bunch of fishermen there that didn't know what they were doing half the time. And they still were doubting. Even Thomas was doubting everything that was going on. Yeah. yeah, and then you get the you get the uh, uh, the son of the Holy Spirit, and he changed. So I mean, these things are there's a pattern there when you see that you know God is love. Yes, He is. That's all three people: the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a really really tough topic to talk about. Uh, yeah, but that's what Christ tried to explain to us: was His love for the Father, the Holy Spirit. Descend upon us that gave us the grace to do what we needed to do. So, so my next question, I had jotted down here that I was going to ask is like, how is one saved? And kind of what I mean by that, it's like, let's just say there was someone sitting here um, who um, they're kind of like going through their life their own way. And like all of us, if we just think about it, we recognize that we're sinners, that we've done things we're ashamed of, you know, and and it just dawns on this person, like, God may be angry with me. There, I've heard of hell. It might be where I'm going. <laughs> what would you say to him as far as, like, you know, how one can be saved? There was a, I can't remember her name right now, Kowalski or something like that, Kowalska. Uh, she was exposed to something called divine grace, divine mercy. And it's a spirit of divine mercy that Christ has for us. Uh, they always show a picture of Christ with the, the rays coming from his heart. Right, I've seen that. Uh, and that's the divine mercy of Christ. And you don't know what's going on in that person's mind, even at the moment of death. That divine mercy doesn't just sit in right in the middle of that and give him the freedom to know that he's been saved no matter what his life was like. Mm-hmm. However, with, with the church, at least you got a little bit better pattern to follow. You can get them forgiven before you get to that point. And it's the way there's a tremendous relief in knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the divine mercy. And you know, I've been through it myself. With, you know, I look back on my rap sheet's probably pretty long like anybody else's is. And I look back on it and I say, wow, how do I get over that? You know, and I said, but it's divine mercy. In fact, I go to confession too, reconciliation. But you, you have to rely on God's divine mercy to get you over that. It's, it's there. It's true. It's, it's part of who he is, along with the divine love that he has. When you say something is divine, it's, you put the word infinite. And how do you how do you take we know how to love our own capacity, but you get a person who's infinite. That love is also infinite. That mercy is infinite. And that compassion, the forgiveness is infinite. But again, it's something called free will. You gotta have that guy's gotta have the free will to accept it. Okay. Um so what gives you the confidence that it's all true as far as like, well, you know, it's, everyone acknowledges, like even non-believers, that Jesus is a historical figure, but that the resurrection, 
you know, that's something not everyone acknowledges. Like a mm-hmm. secular person would probably think of it more as a myth or, you know, an untrue myth or something like that. But of course, a, a believer, they have some confidence that, no, these things are historical, true mm-hmm. things. So for you, is there anything in particular that uh, gives you that confidence? Yeah. Uh, obviously, you have to have a strong faith to believe. You have to have some faith. Even if you got a little bit of faith, it can grow. Uh, but we have something called miracles in the Catholic Church. For a person to become a saint, let's, let's say, for a person to become blessed, there has to be one miracle. Something that's totally out of the physical norm that occurs that is strange. It doesn't. It's not normal. Uh, to be a saint, you have to have two of them, two miracles that this person is is in heaven and that he's there praying for us. Uh, one of the biggest things I got in a conversation the other day uh, in our in our Saint Vincent de Paul group, we were talking about uh, one of the people there had gone to see the. Uh, Fatima, and uh, she was just so taken aback by how beautiful this place was, and to know that Mary, who's God's messenger, and, and believe me, that Christ loves to send his mother out to give messages to people. Uh, it's it's kind of funny because of the fact that uh, that's that much love between him and her that he wants her to be out there also with him. Uh, but several miracles, especially Fatima, and then uh, the Proclamation of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, this is the one uh, where the, I'm going to go back to this one first. It was in Mexico when uh, Guadalupe, when they, they, I think that's where it was at, when uh, a guy by the name of Diego, I can't remember his full name, but it was Diego something, he was told, he was seen a, a vision of the Virgin Mary. And uh, he was taken aback by it because he was talking to her in his language. And uh, she wanted him to to tell the bishop to have a, a church built on the spot. Because there was a lot of stuff that was going on back then. Uh, this is, I can't remember what year it was, 1850s or something like that. But uh, there's a lot of things going on that were not good. And so he went back and told the, the bishop that, you know, what he had seen and what have you. And the bishop told him, he said, oh, unless you got some sign that says that, uh, you know, she's really there, I'm not going to believe you. And uh, so he went back and told the vision of Mary that uh, this is what he said. And he said, well, and she told him to go over to that hill over there and pick some roses. They were white. I guess they were white roses. And this is in the middle of December when roses shouldn't have been in bloom. And so he put them into his uh, cape. I'm going to call it a cape. There's another term for it. Brought it back to the bishop. And uh, basically he said, this is a sign that the lady gave me to show to you that she wants to have that church built there. And he opened it up and all these roses fall out. But what was interesting about the whole thing was inside of it, his cape, was the vision of uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And uh, it's, it was a, a sign from her that what this person was saying was true. There's no way he could have drawn that thing. And so you see that post in a lot of churches. Uh, it was just a copy of that oval type picture of Mary standing on a cloud or on a moon and with the stars in her hair and just that was a gift from her to him to the Catholic Church. The bigger one though was 1917 when uh, Mary appeared at Fatima and at Fatima the three children that were there nobody would believe them and it created a ruckus. The, the authorities of that area uh, wanted to calm things down because there was a lot of stuff going on with the possibility of World War I occurring in 1917. And they were afraid of inciting crowds to create, because they were already on edge for a lot of stuff. But uh, they kept going on the 13th of the month uh, to see her. And then finally, uh, they kept her away from, kept the kids away from where uh, she had normally met them. And uh, she told him that she would have a sign for them. Well, what the sign was, and there was people gathering from all over. The, uh, the uh, authorities were there. There was people, newspaper people from all over the world were there because of supposedly this miracle that was going to happen, a sign, which they didn't know what, was gonna, what it was going to be. And so they're out there, and it was pouring down rain. 
just pouring. Everybody's just soaked, and, and, and the clouds are, you know, uh, covering up everything in the sky. And the next thing you know, they, they said, here's the sign. And then the clouds parted, and the sun was seen. And the sun started spinning and changing colors and coming toward the people. And this was all recorded by the people that were there. <clears throat> and then it actually, you know, scared a lot of people because they thought it was actually going to collide with the world. They didn't know anything about the size of the sun or anything else, but they thought it was going to collide with them. And then all of a sudden it popped back in the position where it was. The clouds were gone. The sun was normal. And uh, <clears throat> the authorities tried to blame it on mass hysteria, except there was one real big problem that they couldn't resolve, and that's the fact that all the people were wet at the beginning of this thing, and when it all ended, everybody was dry. There's no way that they could have dried that fast a time period. And so that was another part of the sign of Fatima, of Mary, you know, trying to get everybody to say the rosary and, and to uh, get closer to her son. That's the biggest thing. They always, she always wants everybody to get closer to Jesus. So that miracle, and I've read the, read the uh, headlines. My mom had a copy of the paper from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about that miracle. And it was fascinating. You can see it. There it is. True. Somebody actually wrote about this thing. You know, it was headlines on the daily paper. But okay. that's what they described. So. Okay. Um, what should Protestants know about Roman Catholics, do you think? They're very close to us. Uh, a lot of things. I think one of the biggest things is probably maybe that they don't really believe that the Eucharist is actually Christ. That maybe it's just a symbol, and we don't believe it as a symbol. The reason being uh, is that was his words were, "This is my body. This is my blood," and you have to take every word of what he says as being true. It's not what the Pope says. And I go up there and I receive communion every day, and even though the priest is up there and he's saying the very same words, it's not because of what he says, it's because of what Christ says, and he stands in Christ's position uh, in a celebration of the Passion, and which is what the, the, the Supper, or the, the Mass is. It's a recreation of the Supper and uh, the, the Passion of what Christ went through. Uh, so it's... It's not what he says, the priest says, it's what Christ said. It, you have to believe it. And I believe his words are true, just because of what he's done in life, what he's done for all of us in life. Uh, so, yeah, that's one of them. And I guess the other thing is, obviously, sometimes Protestants, I think they have a tough time with the Pope being the, the vicar of Christ, the, the head of Christ. But, again, that's one of these things where he didn't put himself there, neither did the cardinals. The cardinals were all... Part of the organization back when we talked about Constantine trying to organize the, the Catholic Church because they were just run amok type people. Uh, but he actually got them more organized on the, the Roman way of doing things with the hierarchies, the, the, the priests, the bishops, the cardinals, and then the, the pope. Uh, but that uh, might be another issue if some people don't believe that the pope is stands in there and, and Various things have come about over the years when he, the Pope is talking about dogma, uh, the belief in what we can believe in and what we can't believe in. His word is the final word. Somebody has to take that leap and say, this is it. No more discussion. And it's, that's what it is, the dogma of faith. That's one of the things that we believe in. Is there anything that you would ask of Protestants, like uh, anything you're wondering about? I'm, I'm Protestant, so yeah, sure, I could. No, I know that. Sure. So, um, is there anything uh, like that that you, you know, you would just wonder, uh, wonder about or anything? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I thought about that. One of the things we've always were taught, and that was, maybe it was just something I learned later in life. Uh, I forgot who said it, but you know, if you have to evangelize, uh, talk. But actually, the way to evangelize somebody to tell them who you are is by your actions. Don't speak. Go by what the person does. We're not we're not the Pharisees. We're not the scribes. We're, we're, if you're you look at what people are doing, so you see that on on uh, uh, when we have the giveouts on Thursday mornings for the food pantry. <clears throat> Most of those people there they're, they're they're smiling. They're, they they're helping people, and uh, it's all volunteer. It's all volunteer. So look at what the actions are. On a person, and if you can't believe what he says, look at uh, maybe he doesn't say it so well, but look what his actions are, 
Maybe his actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing I can tell you, that the actions will always speak louder than words. Right. Yeah, someone's, um, if you want to know what someone believes, their life might tell you more of what they believe than just what they say with their words, perhaps. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You can have a person out there proselytizing to the top of his head on a street corner and saying how good he is and listen to me, blah, blah, blah. But if, you know, if he doesn't do the right things in his life, then and we're, all, when we're all sinners. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be times when you say, what the heck is he doing? You know, but in general, the person is going to be uh, a good example, hopefully, of what you want to follow, what that person's yeah. like. So, Right. And I, you know, as far as people who are like out there on the corner and so forth, sure. I, um, I understand what you're saying, but I don't like have, um, like I just don't know what their, what their calling might be because I, I kind of think of like prophets in the Bible, like, mm-hmm. you know, they did look a little weird sometimes and they were out oh, there, yeah. you know, and yeah. so I just think, well, who knows? Maybe that's just what God has them to do or something <laughs> along those lines, you know, but... <clears throat> My, my little book that I read at church every morning, it's got little stories in it. It's uh, Give Us This Day is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got little stories of people uh, uh, who are blessed, who are people who are very good. Not all of them are Catholic. A lot of them are Protestant. A lot of them are of different faiths. It's like we had, we had some people that uh, used to... Uh, you know, we wondered about the uh, Eastern rites, the, the the mystics over in uh, Buddha and Hindu and all the things that they believe in. Uh, again, this is the facets of God. You know, you always think, here's an infinite being. What's stopping him from doing other things, uh, giving other people some feel for what he's like? Uh, and it's like Christ said, you know, if they're if they're not against me, don't worry about them. If they're for me, hopefully, that's that's what he would like. Mm-hmm. But uh, when he got the situation where he's given you all the tools and the seven sacraments that we have in, in our faith, uh, and that they are strong sacraments, then uh, you have a tough time. You have to look at yourself and say, what's 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 wrong here if I don't believe in this, or what why what can I have that would make my faith stronger? that's being offered right here that they have and that maybe I don't have. So that's another way of looking at it, too. Again, the way, the truth, and the life and the seven sacraments that we've got. So, so why are you involved in the food pantry? I'm sorry? Why are you involved in the food pantry? Why? Yeah. That's a good reason for that. Uh, many years ago, I was a sponsor for a friend of mine. At, I used to work at Mellencrot. And uh, one of the things that we did in him becoming a Catholic was that we had to go and do some service hours. And we went down to St. Vincent de Paul downtown. And St. Vincent de Paul downtown would serve meals to the homeless. And uh, so we were out there. We didn't make the food. It was already being made by a group of people from St. Vincent de Paul. But we'd actually go out there and serve the people to the food and get them seated and what have you. And... That made an extremely strong impression on me because the people that we saw, uh, well, they, they smelled. They, they were, they didn't have, some of these people probably hadn't showered in weeks, uh, if they showered at all. Uh, they were homeless. They were in need. The need was extremely great there. And that left a lasting impression with me uh, in trying to help these people with uh, what was going on. Uh, St. Catherine Lavaray Church uh, is run by the Vincentians, of who I was uh, being a sponsor for, for this individual. He was going to that, that parish at the time. And, of course, the other Vincentian uh, uh, church is St. Vincent de Paul downtown. So those are the two churches, and I got from one church to help on the homeless down there. And that kind of left a, a lasting impression in my heart that uh, this was true. This is real. This is, these people needed help. So I joined the St. Vincent de Paul Society at St. Joe's, and uh, I've seen that repeated a couple of times. Not as severe as what I went through the first time, but it was, uh, it's very, very true, very much in need. These people have 
financial difficulties. They have budgeting problems. Uh, maybe the education just isn't there. Uh, and then again, sometimes it's just when it rains, it pours. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that where people just seem like they're in a rut and people keep throwing dirt on top of them. And we're there to kind of like help get the dirt off of them and, you know, help them in some way. If nothing else, it's friendship. It's it's praying for them. It's giving them financial assistance, uh, giving them more opportunities where they can go for more help. Uh, but we always say a prayer after we see them. And together, there's two of us. And before we go in and see them and after we come out, after seeing them, we say a prayer hmm. uh, that these people find the help that they need if we haven't given them everything that they do need and especially a belief in Christ that they can Christ it there and helping them so yeah that's cool um okay so you know the Catholic Church and and I don't um so my question is like how so like for a non-Catholic you know a Protestant um who you know just want to learn more about it no, that's not my question. <laughs> I don't, I'm, you know, I have started reading the Catechism, and I didn't get very far, but I might. It's pick, pretty dry. <laughs> I might pick it. Well, the front, the beginning of it was pretty warm and like more yeah. fervent than I yeah. was expecting. I expected just question and response type of stuff, yeah. but yeah. I'd, I'd like to continue reading that. But it's, sure. um, but, um, so, um. But, you know, from a Protestant's perspective, at this point anyway, when I just, from my understanding of the Bible, there's just things I don't necessarily agree with, mm-hmm. you know, that Catholics believe. But, you know, fellow Christians, I want to um, enjoy relationships with them, mm-hmm. involvement with them, and as much as, you know, I can as a Protestant who's not, you know, who's a Christian, but not Catholic. So what... In what ways can a Protestant Christian interact and be involved with Catholic Christians? Like, there's a lot of things, like I can't go to confession, for example. Mm-hmm. I can't do take the Eucharist and stuff. But what can uh, a Protestant Christian do with a Roman Catholic Christian? Um, you know, what would be ideal there just to enjoy the connection that we have in Christ, the connection as Christians, even though we're different when it comes to the particular ways we live that out. Sure. We've got people that are non-Catholic that work at the food pantry. Okay. Uh, i got one guy up there, he's Baptist. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah. And uh, we always, we, we, we love having him there because he's, uh, he's very open about his faith. Are you talking about Ryan? No, this okay. is uh, Mel. Mel, okay. Yeah, uh, Mel's, Mel's a great guy. I enjoy talking with him and what have you. Okay. Uh, but there's there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, the thing is, you got free will. So do I. I believe in my faith. You believe in your faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, that free will can make things occur. You either accept or you deny or something inside of you says, your conscience says, no, I can't do that. Uh, which is, in a way, part of what you're, you're saying to me. Yeah. Uh, but there's, we're always open to helping other people, and uh, that's, you know, call it interfaith, uh, call it uh, working together to, to raise up Christ to, to the world, to people know Him, that knows the love of what He is. Uh, that is something that everybody can do, no matter mm-hmm. what faith you are. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not here to condemn any other faith because. You have your own, again, free wills, one of the most powerful things that, that ever was given to us by God. And I had, uh, I had a Jesuit one time told me that even God himself can't change your free will because that would make you something different than what he created. Your free will is so strong that God himself won't touch it. And that's why he wants it because then the love that comes from you to him is on a free will basis. Now, whether that's Protestant or whether that's uh, Catholic, whether it's Jewish, I mean, we haven't gone to Israel lately and you know try to convince all those folks over there. They're still waiting for the Messiah two thousand years later. Right. Uh, apparently, there were some things that the, they were written in their books that uh, said this is what's going to happen when he shows up, and Christ maybe didn't fulfill their expectations, but he fulfilled his expectations of the prophets. 
And so that's that's uh, just one facet of the diamond that we're, we're dealing with here. So before wrapping up, there's one last question I wanted to ask, um, just as a wrap-up type of question. But anything else you want to bring up before we, we, we just do that? No, you're a creation of God just like I am, and we've both got free will. We both uh, do the things that we were taught. Uh, sometimes you have to say a prayer and, and hope that I'm doing the right thing, myself included. Uh, did I say the right thing? Did I, did I, my example to other people, is it the right thing that I'm showing them that, uh, of what, who, and I am and what Christ wants me to be? Uh, for me, I go to mass every morning. I receive Christ every morning. Uh, and every time I receive him, it's always like, give me the faith to trust, faith to trust in you more. Uh, give me the faith to be open to all the things that you want me to do. And that's tough. I mean, being human and your body aches and pains, especially when you get in your 70s. <laughs> mm. it, it's just you're not supposed to talk about that. You know, you never complain. But it hurts. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, uh, it's uh, you're looking for help. And he's there. He's just, you have to open up the, your heart to him and let him in to uh, uh, do the things that uh, he wants you to do. Because there's a lot of times you don't want to do them. But, you know, he's, he's there to help you. All right, here's uh, the last question, and that is, um, like, what do you find satisfying in life when you're doing it? Like, I, you know, some things um, might be, if there's something like this for you, like it just really resonates and just feels like, man, this is what I want my life to be about because it just feels so right, so satisfying. What is that for you? Um, you know? Well, I was terrified to do this, Will. <laughs> Honestly, uh it's kind of funny. Uh, I had to give talks uh, in front of 100 people once uh, down at White House Retreat. And uh, I learned one thing is you don't eat before you go up and give a talk. Uh, <laughs> the second thing is I got another talk. I got, I got coerced into this one uh, to talk to the people at church on this coming Sunday morning uh, about St. Vincent de Paul. And uh, there were probably about 400 people there. And I'm just like, it's... Am I scared? Yeah, I'm scared. I just, <laughs> I'm an introvert. I don't like getting out in front of people and talking. But uh, it's something that sometimes you just throw it out on the table and say, God help me. It's all you can do. And you'd be amazed at some of the things that uh, you're able to do when you just toss it in his hands. Hmm. I've had it sometimes where I was just so, so afraid. Um, and especially with my wife passing like that. And, and yeah, I, you just come out and you say, Christ, take this away from me. I can't handle it. Uh, it's, it's too strong. But he never gives you anything that you can't handle. But you sure can give it back to him. And he will take it. It'll make you feel better. It just, it's, uh, for me, it's a very much of a stress relief to know that he's there and he's willing to do that for me. But I get through it with his help. Well, thanks, Dennis. It's been good talking with you. appreciate you being a guest. All right. Good luck to you.